Okay, we are here in the sanctuary of my office, ready to uh, discuss once again from the book of Acts. We are today in Acts the 11th chapter. If you're in a position to crank a Bible open and follow along with us, go right ahead. Uh, if not, if you're just listening, then great. Thank you for tuning in with myself and Jason Bridgman. Jason, glad to have you once again to talk about uh, Luke's uh, sequel to the gospel. Are you ready to get into Acts chapter 11? Let's jump in, Josh. You know, when we concluded Acts 10 last week, I think I made the comment that I know that you had a lot more stuff that you would have wanted to say about Cornelius's conversion. And the good news is, you can say it this week because <laughs> because chapter 11, uh, at least the first big chunk of it, is a retelling of Cornelius's conversion. Uh, there's an important reason for that. And actually, this ought to stand out to us really any time that the Bible uh, goes out of its way to tell some story or some account more than once. That's probably God's way of kind of cluing us in that, hey, this is pretty important. You know, the fact that... Uh, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is recorded for us four times. Uh, th that's a big deal. Uh, we've noted about uh, the conversion of Saul. Uh, we really kind of get almost three different retellings of that. Um, and we're going to get a retelling of it here. There's really kind of a practical function for why it's being retold here in chapter 11. And, uh, well, we'll see right right away here in the first couple verses of chapter 11. Uh, I, I think it's just really cool. It's, it's literally back-to-back. -back. As soon as the story ends, it's yeah. like... Let's do it again, yeah. just right back to back. Then that's that's really cool, and that's interesting, and I think that's, well, there is a reason, uh, yeah. and I think it's right there. And there may have been a little, there, there, there's probably is a little bit of time here, and I, I don't think like years or anything, but yeah. there's probably some, some days and things that have passed between the end of chapter 10, when Cornelius and his household uh, obey the gospel, and they are now, you know, we call them kind of officially the first Gentile converts to, to Christianity. Um, some uh, some days, some weeks, maybe even a couple months for all I know has, has passed here because word has to have gotten back from what has happened there in Joppa, uh, now, or excuse me, in Caesarea. Uh, where, where were they? Were they in Joppa or Caesarea? <laughs> uh, that, I get them confused. Well, Caesarea. he was in Joppa and he was Came sent to Caesarea. To Caesarea. All right. yeah. So what happened in Caesarea, then, then the word starts to get out and, and travel and make its way back to... Uh, to Jerusalem and the other places where, where Christians were. And that's where we pick up here in verse 1 of chapter 11. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now let's just unpack all of that uh, a little bit. Um, one of the things I wanted to first say is uh, I, I'm usually a, a pretty big defender of the ESV. Uh, it is my preferred <laughs> reading and even preaching translation of the Bible. But the wording in verse 2, uh, how the ESV renders it, the circumcision party, um, mm -hmm. that's just a poor translation. Um, the New American Standard, if I'm correct, just says the circumcised. Is that correct? Those who were circumcised. Those who were circumcised. Um, th th that's a better way to put it because that's all that there were at that time. There really was not a circumcision party. Now, when we get around to, say, chapter 15 of Acts, 
yes, by that point, we've got a circumcision party within the Christian brotherhood. Yeah. But up to this point in time, the, the only people that were Christians were who? The Jews. <laughs> Jews. Circumcised. Circumcised people. So yeah. it's not so much as there's a circumcision party. Uh, and so that's, that, that's, a, that's a knock on the ESV if you're a fellow ESV reader. Uh, you can maybe just do like I did, and that is I just marked out the word party. Uh, and it's just, just, we're just talking about these are Jewish Christians, uh, people that were circumcised, and they're upset about Peter's dealings with uh, these circumcised people that he's just encountered back in uh, chapter 10. Now, what we see here is really where some of the fault lines in Christianity kind of start to become apparent. Now, if you had asked me kind of before really sitting down and really studying and, and looking at this chapter, um, I maybe would have said that their grievance was, you went to uncircumcised men and you baptized them. You know, how dare you baptize them and bring them into, into this Christianity thing? But that's not the grievance. The grievance is not that Peter baptized those folks. The grievance is you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. And this speaks to something that we've, we've kind of been pointing out in, in several of these chapters is the, the, the you know, we've been calling them kind of the Jewiest of the Jews, but m- <laughs> maybe a better term would be kind of, these are Jewish purists. Yeah. Um, that... That they've not made a complete break away from, from from Judaism. They're Christians, but they've not seen that distinction and made that separation. Um, that eating with Gentiles was a huge deal. Yeah. In fact, maybe even just on the whole, we don't even fully grasp what a big deal eating with others was in Bible times. And you think about what Jesus was accused of. You know, Jesus, you're, 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 it's not just that you're talking to those tax collectors and sinners, it's that you're eating with them. And you think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 about you know, the, the brother that's, that's living in sin. What are you to do? Well, do not eat with such a one. And, and why is that such a big deal? Well, because eating denoted fellowship. It was one of the ways in which you, you, you outwardly demonstrated and showed that you had fellowship with, with others, that, um, that there was a, a mutualness uh, going on. Uh, and so to these Jewish purists, it was just inconceivable uh, for a Jew to be demonstrating some kind of outward fellowship with people that, that they had considered unclean. Uh, and, and that's who the Gentiles were to them. Those were unclean folks. Hey, if they want to be baptized and they can form their own little sect within Christianity... That's totally fine. You know, just like there were all the little sects within Judaism. You got the Sadducees over here and the, the, the super, you know, right-wing folks, the Essenes that live down by the Red Sea. You got the Pharisees. You pick your flavor, whatever you want, and it's fine for them to have their own little group. But if you're eating with them, you're basically saying that they're the same as us and that we're all on equal footing and we're not cool with that. Yeah, you know, there's always been an issue with trying to bring anything else into Christianity other than Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, convincing someone that they have to change their culture or, or things like that uh, before they become a Christian. That, that's an issue with the Jews, obviously. Uh, and, and the Hebrews, the Jewiest of Jews, like we said, that's, you know, I, I love that. Um, we got to stop saying that. I know, I know. It I just know. sounds so bad. <laughs> But 
you know, in chapter six, that was that was really the first issue that came up inside the church mm-hmm. uh, with the the Hebrews against the Hellenistic Jews. Yeah, still they were Jews, but but you had the purists. Um, I think that we have a problem with that uh, in American Christianity. Yeah. Sometimes I think uh, we consider uh, you know it it's wrong for anybody else from any other country to uh, observe Christianity in an un-American way. Yeah. Um, and you know we don't need to convert people to Americanism no. in order for them to become a Christian. And, yeah. and I think there's we need to divorce those concepts and realize that there are some traditions that I think the American church has that we need to, to really analyze and, and figure out what are we trying to bind on people that's not scriptural, yeah. that's just traditional. Jesus didn't die on the cross to make Americans. <laughs> he died on the cross to make Christians. And uh, I remember a couple years ago having a conversation with a, uh, a, a brother, a very well-meaning brother, who you know, was of the firm belief that demonstrating patriotism um, for America, that that was part of our Christian duty. Mm-hmm. And you know, maybe there's some elements of what he, what he thought that, and there's, there's good things. To, you know, I, I'm, I'm proud to be an American. I'm thankful for the freedoms that we enjoy here. Um, but my question to him was when he you know, wanted to, to press this idea that patriotism for America is, is really kind of a part of a sign that, that you're a real Christian, I asked him, I said, but what about our Christian brothers in Russia or China? Are, are they required to be patriotic about America? Or should they be patriotic about their own country? And how does that create conflict? And of course, it, it, it didn't engender any kind of response from him, uh, as it should not, uh, because that's, there's just a fallacy there. And it's, it's trying to, to, to meld together things that... Those are not the things that God intended to, to meld together. You know, in Christ Jesus is where we have our unity. And that's really going to be one of the things that I think is, is maybe the big takeaway from these first um, 18 verses. Uh, and that is Peter wants to help these folks to see um, that we can have unity in Christ. And this is the way that God designed for it to be when, you know, when Isaiah spoke of, you know, all these different nations being able to flow to the mountain of God. Um, this is that. This is what this is. And this is God's hand. This is not Peter's doing. Uh, and this is what I'm going to love about Peter's defense here, uh, is Peter's just going to kind of point it that this is God's decision. This isn't, this isn't something that Peter decided to do and, you know, you all going to be upset with me about this. Um, this is God's choice. And um, we'll say some more about that here in just a moment after we read Peter's defense. What else on the first three verses? Well, I, I think that, that that's a pretty good summary. And that's that's quite the introduction here. But I think it's important that we do realize how big of a deal it is. Yeah. And how much that we fall into this category and don't even realize it. Yeah. Because I, I think sometimes we read through things like that and it's like, whew, man, those Jews were terrible. Yeah. Um, but it's like, what are we doing? Yes. And well, and, and here's the other thing. And this is the reason I'm, I'm kind of, I, I want to cut them some slack a little bit too. Um, but hey. I used the word inconceivable earlier. In fact, in my little notes that I did right here, I underscored the word inconceivable. <laughs> and, and that is because the thought of this really was inconceivable to them. Yeah. And it was going to take some time for, for, for them to... Un- and I realize at this point in history, we're already a good, I don't know, 10, 12 years into you know, the, the early church at this point. 
Uh, I, I don't know how much time you need, but uh, apparently some of these folks did need a little bit more time uh, to, to, to work through that. This would be like you know me sitting down with uh, a premillennialist. And I'm going to sit down and I'm going to share with them some, some things from the Bible as to why I believe premillennial doctrine just doesn't fit. It would probably be foolish for me to expect something that they have believed all of their life and they've been taught in a million different ways why this is so. It would really be silly for me to expect that for me to just say these things to them in the course of an hour or however long I get to spend with them, that they're just going to completely you know, turn that switch off and be completely converted in their thinking. Uh, it's going to take some time. And, and, and that's why I'm willing to you know, give a little bit of grace uh, to these folks here uh, because this had been so ingrained in, in their thinking, especially it, what we talked about uh, in chapter 10, I think, um, just how Gentiles were thought of and that they were thought of as being unclean. And it's not that that's what the Law of Moses taught. Law of Moses did not teach. There was no passage in the Old Testament that said you were breaking a law by eating with a Gentile person. Mm. But that's what they had been led to believe over time, that, that traditional thinking. And uh, it's just going to take, it's gonna take some, some hard stuff to get them to, to break from that. And not every one of them is going to break from that. Like I said, when we get to chapter 15, we've got a sect now of folks who are just diehard holding on, and they're not willing to let that go. Um, and it's gonna, it is going to cause some real problems. There's uh, a lot of pages in the New Testament that we have yet to read, in the epistles yes. even, that talks about this issue. There are entire books about <laughs> yeah. this issue. Yeah. So, Galatians. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that's worth noting, this is maybe kind of a little bit of a difference with, um, you know, well, why wasn't Philip confronted after Acts chapter 8? I mean, he went and, yeah, I mean, he, he's out there talking with that Ethiopian man and, you know, why didn't he get scolded about this? Well, a couple differences. Number one, um, there's no mention that he went into the Ethiopian man's house. Yeah. Uh, and then number two, as we talked about a little bit last week, um, that man, it seems, was a Jewish proselyte. He was yeah. a Gentile that had become a Jew by proselyting to that faith. Uh, and so that was a little bit different. And that's, that's really what makes the case with Cornelius' house so unique, is that these were fully Gentile people. Peter did spend time in their house and uh, had that kind of you know, direct sort of fellowship with them. Um, and so the question is, what do you got to say for yourself, Peter? Uh, they, they come kind of blasting at him. You went and did this. What's the deal here? We've been hearing about this. You know, this, the, the word has trickled through the grapevine back to us. And, hey, what's up here? What's going on, man? You're supposed to be an apostle. You're supposed to be setting the tone for the rest of us. Hmm. Verse 4. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I'll just say real quickly there about in order. I remember Luke using that same kind of language kind of at the very beginning of the book, does he not? Uh, about... Um, said that at the beginning of Luke. Or at the beginning sure. of Luke, yeah, about uh, trying to give an orderly account. doesn't necessarily mean uh, going to give this in chronological order. I think it really just conveys the idea of uh, going to present this in a logical and orderly way to you. Um, and it would have been the order that Peter was experiencing yes, it. Yes, yes. Not the, necessarily how we read it in chapter 10. That's right, that's right. Peter's, this is from his perspective. Uh, verse 5. I was in the city of Joppa praying... 
and, and we're not going to end up having to make a whole lot of comments about all the details for sure. this next big chunk here because we talked about it in chapter 10. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers, and I kind of picture Peter's kind of making the, the defense here to the, the Jews that have confronted him, and he's kind of flanked by these other brothers kind of around him. Like, you know, here's my, my witnesses for what all happened. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. <laughs> Maybe this is also Peter deflecting a little bit, saying, hey, I didn't do this by myself. <laughs> it was seven of us at least. That went. That's right. Yeah. Uh, we entered the man's house, verse 13, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon who is called Peter. He would declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Verse 18, when they heard these things, so it's the Jews that have come and asked Peter these questions, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, as I already said, we're not going to need to talk about all the, the specifics there because it is pretty much just a, a retelling. There's a couple of those little notes that are not told in chapter 10, like the mention of the, the six men that were with Peter and maybe a couple of other minor things. What I appreciate most about Peter's defense, if you want to call it that here, uh, is that it's not based on some kind of an emotional argumentation like, well, well who are you to come and accuse me? Nope. Let me just lay out the facts for you guys. You know, you all weren't there. I was there. So let me tell you what, what, what I observed and, and what happened. There's not any kind of like self-justification here. Like, now, hey, listen here. I'm going to tell you why I did what I... Th there's none of that kind of thing going on here. Yeah. Rather, what Peter does is he just relies on, of course, relaying just the facts and giving firsthand testimony. But more than that, all of this is based upon essentially God's Word. What is it that God had spoken and what God wanted? Verse 12, for example, God's Spirit is the one that told me to go. You know, I didn't just wake up, you know, one morning and say, you know what, I think, it, I, think I ought to go to Caesarea and just start preaching to Gentiles. <laughs> no, God's Spirit sent me to go. Uh, verse 14, he makes mention of uh, Cornelius' uh, vision that he saw. An angel of God came. Basically, so, so the actions even that Cornelius took was based upon words from God. Uh, verse 16, he makes reference and calls back to the things that uh, Jesus had said uh, about, about the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and yes, this is a reminder, this is a fulfillment of the very uh, words of Christ. Uh, in, in other words, Peter's saying, this wasn't my decision, this was God's decision. He's the one that decided all of this, 
And I just was merely the, the instrument that he used uh, to, to bring all of that to pass. And I especially am drawn to what he says uh, at the end of verse 17 when he kind of sums everything up. If God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then who was I to stand in God's way? And that's really been kind of a it's really kind of been an undercurrent theme in the book of Acts thus far. You remember back in what was it chapter uh, 5 when Gamaliel spoke up mm. and said, "Hey fellas, you don't want to be known for trying to oppose God. You try that, it's not going to work out good." And that's really what we've seen God do time and time again up through these first 10 chapters is that whenever barriers uh, or people tried to oppose or things happened that stood in God's way, what does God do? God mows it right down. I mean, He just plows right through it. When the Sanhedrin Council wants to try to put a stop to Christianity, God just bulldozes right through it. Um, when there's you know uh, persecution that arises, and it seems like that's going to be the death knell for the church, God just plows right through that as well. Uh, when there's complaints from the, the Hellenists within the church, God just bulldozes. Well, we probably shouldn't talk about bulldozing over poor widows. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's a barrier that God takes down. Uh, God's not going to allow things to stand in the way and, and, and oppose uh, His work. And Peter recognizes that whenever people attempt to do that, it, it never ends well. And he says, I, I, I'm not going to stand in God's way. Yeah, I think that, that that's why this shows that this is sort of the template of how to handle uh, religious discussions. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes instead, of, I think sometimes we we say things like religious arguments. I don't think that's a good way to look at yeah. when we're discussing spiritual matters. Um, you know, because of all people who would have had the right to say something that that you said before, like who are you to question me? I mean, Peter was one of the leading apostles. I yeah. mean, he was there. Um, I think that this shows that nobody is above scrutiny, that uh, no matter who we are, no matter how well-known we are or how versed in the scriptures, you know, people will ask questions sometimes, mm -hmm. and we're not above that. Now, how do we respond to that? Uh, well, you need to trust me. You know, you, you know that I'm good. No, he he laid out the facts, like you said. It was yep. very logical. Yep. Christianity, that's how it works. I mean, it, it's logical statements. Uh, here's the evidence. Here's why I did what I did. Here's here's what happened. Here's what God did, and we see God working through His Word here. Um, there's a, a few other things um, to consider with that too. So when Peter was uh, was saying this to them, um, he didn't have to recreate the miracles mm -hmm. that had happened before. Uh, you know, it it wasn't in God's plan that every time that someone was taught the gospel, that they had to be shown the miracle to prove it. Yeah, it was like okay, that that did happen. Peter saw it; he was a witness. These other six guys, they were witnesses. But then you had the eyewitness testimony, and that's how these people in Jerusalem come to believe. Yeah, exactly like we do. Yeah. You know, we don't have firsthand account of these miracles, but we believe the same way that these Jerusalem brethren came to believe. Um, you know, through that. I think it was kind of interesting that there were six brethren. That makes a total of seven witnesses, mm -hmm. seven being the complete number. Yeah. Uh, so that was just that was kind of cool. Um, and yeah, I, I think that, that this this is just an amazing event here. Uh, the the last thing that I, I have to comment on is is how in verse fourteen we didn't hear that before. Uh, that what what Cornelius Ted told them was that you know the Peter's going to come and speak words by which you will be saved. 
you and all your household. Yeah. I think that's big because uh, we didn't hear that in chapter 10, but if that's true, if, if what the angel said to him is true, which I hope it is because it's an angel who should be telling the truth, um, the thing that will save you are the words that Peter was going to bring to yes. him. Not that interaction with the spirit right. uh, that they had, uh, and so or think, even an encounter with an angel, right, yeah, or all that his his good things that he had done, or yeah. all that he had prayed, yeah, and so that that's an important consideration. Yes, yes, the words, the message, um, and there's an emphasis on, and actually we're going to continue to even see even in this last part of chapter eleven the the emphasis on the the teaching of the word and and it, it's it's the message, um, you know. There is, as I kind of think about the, uh, the the brothers, the Jewish brothers who come to Peter here and uh, kind of demand an explanation of all of this. It's maybe not a, a, a direct parallel, but it makes me think about it, about how sometimes today we are a little reluctant to accept someone else's quote-unquote conversion story. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm particularly thinking about you know, people who come from, you know, a, a, a different church background than we did. And the thinking that, you know, their conversion is, is not valid because they did not come from the same exact kind of church or faith tradition that I did. Um, and it may be that, yes, what, what, what they experienced was totally unbiblical, but but I say that because I just I, there have been times in my life where I've encountered people who who were baptized, you know that they, they made a confession of faith before doing so. There was an intention of of, of uh, to change their life. Repentance w- was was there according to, to to the way that they explained what happened, and and they believed that they were baptized for the remission of their sins. Now it didn't happen inside of a Church of Christ building. Hmm. Uh, it didn't happen by the hands of a you know a Church of Christ preacher uh, administering the baptism. Uh, it, it happened you know in some other environment, and and I've known of brethren who well it just didn't count. You know I'm sorry. You know how could you have possibly been been taught the right thing and uh, you know done the right thing if you grew up in a an environment that taught things that were wrong and practiced things that were wrong, and I don't know. There's something about this story that says to me, we just ought to be, we ought to be very hesitant to, to kind of jump to those sorts of conclusions. Um, I'm not saying just accept everything that everybody just automatically says, and you know, especially if somebody says, well, I was saved, and let me tell you what happened was, you know, God spoke to me in the middle of the night and uh, filled my heart, and then I was saved. All right, that, 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 that's a different kind of thing. Uh, here is some people who were baptized in the name of Christ, uh, in water, for the remission of their sins. And I've met people like that. They come from a, again, they may come from a what we might consider a more liberal uh, segment of Churches of Christ, or maybe even come from a denominational uh, church. Um, I, I'm of the belief that there are people that have actually, genuinely, obeyed the gospel uh, even in circumstances that were very different from from mine, and uh, certainly, you know, I, I'm not going to be the final judge on that matter. But but I am. My inclination is going to be to take people at their word, mm. and if in the process of time, as we get to know one another, and maybe as we have opportunities to study, if they come to the conviction that you know what, 
maybe I wasn't actually uh, obedient to the gospel the way that the Bible taught, then I'm going to leave that to them to make that determination and not so much leave that to, to my you know, final determination about that. Who are we to judge anyway? Yeah. yeah. Then, you know, I want to tell a personal story because uh, this is kind of embarrassing and I thought I'd just share it with everybody. Um, Self-deprecation <laughs> is always welcome here. <laughs> exactly. You're welcome. When, we, when we're studying with people, when we're talking to people about the gospel, it's important that we listen and actually understand what people are saying. Because uh, sometimes I think we, we go in with preconceived notions of, well, obviously they have a misconception about this. And so me having all the knowledge, I want to share it with them. Mm -hmm. That's a terrible attitude to have. I, yeah. I spent an hour trying to convince a guy that baptism was uh, important for salvation. After all of that and what I thought was my mic drop moment of, of here, baptism is essential. He was like, yeah, of course, I, I know. I was like, what? whoa, 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 what? <laughs> It's like I spent all this time telling. He's like, oh, that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> so it's like, oh, okay. So we have to listen, and yeah. we have to understand. People are going to come from different backgrounds, different situations, and everybody's different. You know, just because someone is 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 brought up in a certain group, in a certain church building, or, or you know, a certain part, doesn't mean that they hold to everything that that group tends to teach or believe, yeah. um, you know, even members of the church that, that we would consider. And so we need to, to really take time to invest, to get to know, and, and to understand what they're actually saying and where they're coming from. Yes, and be way more reluctant to just paint in broad strokes that, well, well so that's where you come from, you know, then you must believe you know, X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. uh, every, every individual is, is different, you know, and... Um, yeah, um, the, the the thing that jumps out at me uh, is this this issue that the Jews, these purish Jews, just could not fathom the idea that these Gentiles are now essentially the same as us. Yeah, and that's interesting because th there's a word that's used there in verse seventeen. Um, I'm not sure if the New American Standard uses the the word, but if then God gave the same gift. Yeah. That word same there, uh, and this is one of the things I remembered from uh, a preacher telling this years ago, the word same there is the Greek word isos. And that's where we get our English word, like for example, isosceles. So you think about an isosceles triangle, that's a triangle where every side is equal length. It's They're all the same. Uh, that same word is used in the parable of the laborers. Remember the story of the laborers? There are those who arrived early in the morning and worked, and then there were those who showed up in the very late afternoon and they worked. But at the end of the day, the master, he paid them all the same. They paid them all equally. And that's what's said in Matthew 20, verse 12. In fact, the ones who were complaining, they said, well, you've made them equal to us. And that's that same word, uh, isos, or same. And you know what? That's what's happening here. God has made these Gentile Christians equal to the Jewish Christians. He has made them the same. He has brought us all in to this one body. And now, as Galatians chapter 3 talks about, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, etc., etc. We are all one in Christ Jesus, baptized into that one body. I think that it's interesting. Uh, this story is actually retold again in a shorter version in Acts 15. 
And when Peter says this, and I know I'm stealing our thunder from that chapter, Sorry. Uh, but when, when he says that, uh, let's see, in verse 9, he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. And then verse 11, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Because yeah. that, that, that puts a different spin on it. It's almost like, okay, we Jews can be saved just like the Gentiles are being saved. And, and it's, it's putting them, you know... Not almost below what the Gentiles are, yeah. and I think in a lot of ways they had a lot less preconceived notions about what that you know worship looked like. Uh, and so that's just interesting. There is an equal playing field, yeah, for sure. I'll just say one more thing about this uh, about, uh, and we talked a little bit about it in chapter ten, but about about Holy Spirit baptism. Mm-hmm. Um, once again, just just take note here in in verse sixteen how. Peter says, well, 15, 16, and, and 17, uh, how Peter says that, that how this was made evident to me and, and everything was fully clicking was when the Holy Spirit fell upon them as it had on us uh, at the beginning. And notice that Peter does not say... Um, that, you know, the way the Holy Spirit fell on them in that way, you know, it was the same way when we baptized Brother Dale last week or, you know, whoever else, you know, the other day. No, the only other occasion that Peter can think of to liken this to was what happened on the day of Pentecost. And so in many ways what happened at Cornelius' house is, you know, it's Pentecost part two. Uh, yeah. but, but those are the only two instances of, of such a thing happening. And it... it it also was not something that Peter commanded or that Peter administered. No, it was something that God did, something that the Spirit did of its own volition. Uh, it's not something that Peter could command to happen. Uh, the Spirit's going to do what the Spirit's going to do. Uh, and there's no way that Peter could even administer such a thing. Uh, what Peter administered was water baptism, uh, but what God administered was this falling of the Holy Spirit upon them uh, as a very direct and visible sign uh, of, of, of his approval of what is happening here and making it very clear to Peter and to everyone else who was present on that occasion uh, that God has granted salvation to the Gentiles. Yeah, I think because he brings up in verse 16 the word of Jesus himself yeah. who said, you know, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And the you he was talking about were the apostles. And that's that's the only only people that that promise was given to. Yeah. Um, and so that that's a big deal. And and I, I think that just the exclamation point on all this, just to show that that's what was really going on. Um, they were they were so upset in verse three about you went to them and you ate with them, but now in verse eighteen they heard this, they quieted down, they glorified God, and then they realized you know God's granted the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. Yeah. And it's like, okay, now it finally makes sense. Uh, you know, and the only conclusion that they came to was that God had let the Gentiles in as well. Yeah. Um, which that phrase, by the way, just really, really strikes me there. Uh, granted the Gentiles repentance. It doesn't say that God has granted the Gentiles salvation. Uh, and I and I used that word a second ago, and I I meant to pull it back even as it was coming out of my mouth. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, that's just interesting because um, it's it's a gift that we are able to repent. Yes. Um, and you know, is repentance that leads to life. You have that that idea of repentance all the way throughout Acts. I mean, in what way are we able to be saved? Um, you know, even from John's baptism, he printed 
uh, he, he preached a, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You know, you have this connection. We cannot get forgiveness of sins. We can't enter in that salvation without repentance. Right. We have to give up our own life in order uh, to pursue a life of godliness and to turn to the Lord. Um, but it is a great benefit for us to be able to repent. Yeah. Acts, I was looking for it. Acts 5.31, similar language had been used back there about that God exalted Jesus at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance or to grant repentance. And again, there's the idea yeah. there that... Uh, you know, that was a, that was a gift uh, to yeah. to be have the opportunity. God doesn't have to even give us the opportunity to repent. True. It, it, God could just be of the mind that all right, you sin one strike, you're out. That's it. Uh, but He gives and grants the opportunity for all people now uh, to repent. Um, the, all right. So, uh, anything else? First eighteen verses on the Cornelius story before we wrap that up. I think we drained that one pretty good. Okay. <laughs> well, the the last section here uh, of of chapter eleven uh, talks about the the Antioch church, and mm. I, you know, to me, this is one of the more it probably is the unheralded church in the New Testament, and maybe the reason for that is is because there's not like a letter written to the Antioch church. Yeah. You know, Jesus doesn't have to call them out in Revelation two and three. Um, <laughs> There's there's not a lot of bad there's really not any bad things mentioned about this church. I'm not saying that it was a perfect church, um, but because of that, we don't end up in investing a lot of time. You know, if, if we're studying Corinthians, we usually spend the first you know week talking about the city of Corinth, and let me point out Corinth on a map, and we're doing all that kind of thing. We don't do that with Antioch, uh, but we probably should because this very much is a model congregation. And uh, we're going to notice some some things already good to say about this church, even from this first introduction to it here in chapter 11, but it won't be the last time we'll, we'll learn about the Antioch church. Uh, let's just read there in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that had arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. And so this was this this is how God ordained it in the beginning. You're going to take the gospel to uh, to Jewish people first and foremost, and that's what those early Christians are doing. But the mention here of Antioch is a big deal. Uh, Antioch is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. We're talking like a half a million people. Yeah. You know, it was Rome, Alexandria, and then Antioch. And there's going to be two different Antiochs talked about in the New Testament. There's this one, which is Antioch of Syria. It's the capital of Syria. The other one is Antioch of Pisidia, and we'll have some mentions of that when we start looking at uh, Paul's preaching journeys. And so let's kind of keep distinction with with those two. Um, but now Luke wants to kind of shift the focus to talk about what was going on in Antioch. So verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. So we've got some of these brethren who come now to Antioch, and there's a lot of there's a lot of these Hellenist folks, lots of lots of Greek speaking folks, lots of people who are not, you know, Jewish purists. And we're now going to start preaching to them uh, as well. Uh, notice the emphasis on preaching the Lord Jesus. It does not say preaching Jesus the Messiah, uh, or Jesus the Christ. Not that those were not important ideas, but to people who were, you know, uh, uh, of the Greek mindset, people who bowed the knee to Caesar, people who saw Caesar as Lord, 
they needed to have kind of some rewiring in their thinking done. They needed to come to appreciate that Jesus is your Lord, uh, and here's the reasons why. Uh, and so that was the emphasis in their preaching to, to those people. Verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Uh, the turning there is just another word for this idea of, of repentance and repenting uh, that's taking place here. Belief alone does not guarantee that's right. that you are following the Lord because those from those that believed, a large number of them turned to the Lord. I yes. think that's an important distinction. Yes. You know, when we get to like Acts chapter uh, 17 when Paul's in... Uh, when it comes to Athens, you know, there's all kinds of different degrees of people. There's some people who, who believe and they they turn. There's some people who eh, kind of believe, but eh, not today. I will hear you again on this matter. And then there's people who just don't even believe at all. And uh, and so yeah, just just because someone believes or accepts, you know, mentally accepts facts about things, uh, that's not necessarily the definition of Bible belief and Bible faith. True. Bible faith is accompanied with, with action, turning to the Lord, uh, amongst other things. Verse 22, the report of this, the report of the, the fact that we've now got Christians uh, or, or believers being found in, uh, in this place of Antioch, verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Can we just stop right there? All right, so we've got... We've now got seemingly probably got some Gentiles that are being converted to the Lord here in Antioch. Mm -hmm. And word gets back to, to Jerusalem about that. And it's not that Jerusalem is the mother church, but again, it's where the apostles have been kind of the hub of their activity. And um, they send Barnabas to Antioch. I, I find that very telling as far as uh, what we can do that's going to bring about the very best possible um, outcome here with these people. We're not going to send some of our Pharisee brethren to Antioch. <laughs> yeah. Because if they go talk with these guys, what are they going to do? Well, they're going to start telling them how, hey, you need to become Jews. They're probably going to come up there with scalpels and want to you know, <laughs> circumcise, and you yeah. need to do all this stuff in order to really be a true Christian. Uh, that's not who they send. Who they send is brother encouragement. Mm -hmm. They send the guy who is, his very name, you know, carries with it the idea of encouragement. They send the, the, the probably the best possible candidate uh, to be able to help these, these new converts to kind of find their way and to, 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 to help bring them to the point of, uh, of, of maturity that, that they need to be. And um, I don't know, there's just a, a great lesson in that about, you know, just... We want to we want to help put people in the right place at the right time and pair them up with the right people. I think about people that have been just converted in recent years and how once you kind of find out things about their past and about their life or things that they struggle with or things that are issues for them, maybe things that you know they they still have a they believe these things because of their past religious background. I'm always looking through the congregation for. 
you know what, brother so-and-so came from a very similar background. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And let you talk to him. Or, you know, sister so-and-so, she's, she's dealt with that in her family too. And let me see if I can pair you up with, with that person. Uh, these people recognize the wisdom of we're going we're gonna to pair these folks up with, with, with the right kind of person who can help to bring them along to where they need to be. That's a really good point. I think that we need to take some pages out of their book a little bit more. Yeah. Um, you know, Barnabas was a really good person to go there. One, he was very encouraging, and I think that's what he was, you know, trying to do. Um, two, maybe some of those men, like verse 20, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, Barnabas was from Cyprus. It could have been some of his, you know, people that he was familiar with before, you know. Uh, so maybe there was that connection. But there was no, you mentioned before, there was no idea of, it, this isn't like a mother church trying to uh, make sure that we get all of the the satellite churches in an agreement and alliance. It's not like we're, we're sending someone to dominate and take over and take charge. They're sending someone to encourage. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's a big deal. Um, and I, I think that, that maybe we need to do more of that. You know, yeah. maybe, maybe even between we hear of a church somewhere else, you know what, they're struggling. We have this brother here who's, who's really encouraging, would be really helpful. Uh, yeah, why, why don't you go over there for a little while and, and take care of some and, and help them out? Not to take over, not to, you know, bulldoze them into, you know, belief. But uh, maybe some encouragement. Yeah, I think that that we need to be more concerned about uh, you know God's kingdoms increase more than our specific groups increase. Yes, uh, you know there was no jealousy here. It wasn't like you you don't see the church at Jerusalem being like. This is a huge city down there. I think we need to get them under control. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it was be some competition for us. Exactly. Yeah. No, it was. Let's encourage them. You yeah. know, praise God for this, and let, let's you know j- enjoy their their growth too. Yeah. It's there's a there's a it's it's the mindset of it, it's about the kingdom. It, it's not about you know specific local congregations, and that's not to say that local congregations are not important. They are. Um, but but this is about the kingdom. What's going to benefit the kingdom the most? What's going to uh, allow you know God's glory to 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 have the greatest amount of of, of amplification in the world? And um, yeah. and that was the thinking of, of of these brethren. And you're right. We need more of that uh, today. Mm-hmm. Um, Look at what else is said about Barnabas, uh, verse 23. Uh, when he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he, Barnabas, was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Um, I just love the, just the descriptions that Luke goes out of his way to, to describe Barnabas. You know, when it says he was a good man, I mean, there's only like three or four people in the whole Bible that that's even said of. Yeah. You know, Jesus is one of them. Uh, there's a really obscure reference in the Old Testament. I can't even think of the guy's name that said he was a good man. Uh, and then Barnabas. Uh, yeah. You know, that's a, that's a big deal. Uh, and much like it was described of, of Stephen before him, full of the Holy Spirit uh, and of faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I love that it says that you know, he was glad when he saw the success of what was happening there. Again, there wasn't like some kind of spirit of, of jealousy or rivalry of like, you know, come on now, wait. Jerusalem's the, <laughs> the the big deal. No, there's. I mean, he's just glad to see the kingdom work thriving. It's a. I, I, whenever I see a, a post on Facebook, uh, a, a, or a picture of, or, or somebody just post about somebody being baptized, 
Yeah. Man, that's an automatic like for me or yeah. a love for me reaction uh, because that's just that, that just means the kingdom has grown. Uh, that's one person that's been taken out of the domain of darkness and placed into uh, the kingdom of Christ, and we ought to be glad about that. And it, it may have not even been, it, you know, most most of the people that I see on there, of course, are not even from my own congregation. Yeah. You know, I'm only looking at a limited few when I'm talking about the things that happen here in the congregation that I'm a member of. But you know, I'm friends with people from all over the the, the country and even uh, other parts of the world. And so, uh, seeing the, the growth of the kingdom, that's that's what ought to get us excited. And ought to it, it ought to you know cause us to have the same kind of rejoicing that the angels in heaven have. Uh, there's no spirit of rivalry there. Like, oh, we're rooting on this group over here. No, I'm rooting on this team over here. We're all on the same team. Yeah, that, and I think that should change the way we evangelize too. Yeah, because we are not trying to convert people to a group. That's right. Or you know, some kind of club or come join us because you know we have cookies. Um, it's it's more of let's let's bring them to the kingdom of God. Whatever that means, wherever they are. Um, and, and let's be grateful for that and, and thankful that we're able to, to help people find that. Yeah. Um, and, and not just be like, well, look at how many numbers we got. How many people come to this building you know, a few times a week? You know, who cares? The, verse 24 says a great many people were added to the Lord. Yeah. It doesn't say there was a great many people added to the church at Antioch. Oh, yeah. It says yeah. they were added to the Lord. And this brings me to my other, I told you I had a couple of nerdy Greek things I was going to share. This is the second one. That word added, we've seen that already two or three times in chapter 2. We saw it again in chapter 5, verse 14. Mm-hmm. The Greek word there for added is the word uh, prostithome. And if that sounds sort of like a word that we would know, it is where we get our word prosthetic. Hmm. A prosthetic limb has been added to you, to your body. An addition has taken place there. And that is a neat way to think about evangelism, that what we are doing is we are helping God in adding members. We're helping in adding limbs to this body, (laughs) to the body of Christ, uh, to the the kingdom. And... um, I don't know. It's just, that's just the picture of like you know each new person when they're converted to Christ, they're getting you know attached to this body. You know we're kind of running out of parts. I don't know. Well, the human body is amazing, so there's all kinds of parts that I don't even recognize. But like you know each new one's getting added and attached onto it, and then the body's becoming bigger and stronger. Uh, the longer uh, the world stands, and the longer that. Uh, Christians are able to continue to, to help do that work. I, I think that, that shows why it's so stupid for, for groups to feel like, man, we need to be better than this group over here. Yeah. It's like our body's not fighting against it itself. You're right. You know? And so, like, that's, there's some kind of immune disorder if that's happening. Like, we, we work together. And, you know, no matter if it, it, it's us and a cross-town church or, you know, across the country, across the world, we're all in this together and we, we all come together to accomplish the Lord's will. And, and we, we're, we're thankful that we have each other there. And, you know, we're, we're able to, to help out in whatever way we can. Yeah. Verse 23, it's worth saying something about how it says that Barnabas, when he came, that he, he saw the grace of God. You know, grace is one of those ideas that, you know, it it seems like this, you know, nebulous, abstract, abstract, yeah. floaty thing. Um, but much like faith and other things like that, we can see evidence of it. Uh, and, and, and that's the case here. He saw God's grace. He saw it in the fact that he saw uh, Gentile people uh, turning to the Lord. The fact that he saw... Uh, Gentiles and Jews trying to work together uh, in the body of Christ. All of those things are evidence of 
of, of, of God's grace at work in the lives of, of, of human beings. And that's just a, know, that's just a beautiful idea, just the idea of seeing the grace of God being manifest. Yeah. Um, verse, uh, might I say as well about verse 23, that, that Barnabas's job was to kind of, in, in many ways, to kind of be a spark plug. You know, the, the word in, in, encourage if you just break it down, it's the idea of putting courage in. And that's what Barnabas kind of specialized. And what I always, the, the image that I always picture in my mind is of uh, a dead car battery, but someone who's got a, a, a good car battery pulling up alongside next to you, and you get those jumper cables, and it's able to infuse that energy, and it's able to put something in to this thing. And that's what Barnabas is doing here. He's coming, and he's putting some energy into, and he's putting some uh, exhortation into, uh, encouraging them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. I don't know how that reads in the uh, New American Standard. Resolute heart. Resolute heart. Um, you know, here's a guy who's who's obviously been a Christian for, for longer than these people have, for a few years at least, and um, he's able to come and kind of, you know, give them an inside look about, you know, what this is going to require to be a Christian and why you can do this and come on, you know, kind of, it's not just the pep rally kind of atmosphere as we think about an encourager, but uh, someone who, again, is able to come alongside and help infuse some things into those people's lives, and that's what he's uh, doing here. That was his that was his role, and I don't take that to mean that Barnabas never did any kind of teaching. Clearly, he would have done some teaching, uh, but it's funny that we don't think about Barnabas as being teacher and preacher the, the way that Paul was. Mm -hmm. But that does not make his role any less important. I mean, you can make an argument that. At this point in history, for what's going on right then and right there, his role was maybe even more. We don't even know what Paul's even doing at this point, to be honest with you. Yeah, it's not until, not until a couple of verses when he goes and looks for Saul. We don't even know what he's been doing for the last few years. Yeah. Um, and so uh, here's Barnabas uh, playing this role that you know people kind of tend to diminish the role of an encourager. That's uh, not the way God's looking at it. Uh, God, through the Holy Spirit, through the pen of Luke here, uh, would seem to indicate to me that, man, this guy's job is really important. He's kind of helping to be the, the glue to keep these people together in the early stages of their Christianity. I think maybe some of us can relate a little bit more to being discouraged uh, over the past few weeks, months, whatever, uh, because there's there's a lot to be discouraged about. Yeah. But you know, we, we still have people, and hopefully it's true for whoever's listening, that you have somebody in your life who is encouraging, that you, you know you can go to, you know... Uh, maybe is posting some some great stuff, you know, social media just to, to be uplifting, or or maybe you're able to to take part in some kind of studies or, or whatever. And and there are people who are able to to give you that fire, and it and it is like a fire. Sometimes we feel like we're we're sort of dying down, and and man, I just don't have a lot of energy. I, I don't have a lot of zeal for this anymore. But all it takes is a little spark. And and yeah. if if somebody if if we see somebody else either doing something or they directly help us in some way, that is such an encouraging thing. And, and that gives us uh, the desire to, to you know, carry on. Um, and if you don't, if you're listening and you don't have an encourager in your life, let me give you Jason's number. It's 606. <laughs> You would, though. And but for real. But for and Jason is one of those. He's he's one of those guys that I always think of as being. You're 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 a good encourager person, and uh, we do need those people. We we need you know, the the Lord's kingdom uh, is never 
going to be able to say that well we've got too many Barnabases. Hmm. No, yeah. no. Let's 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 keep having those guys. Keep developing that. If that's uh, in in yes, I think there's some aspect of of the Barnabas encouragement role that that maybe some people are you know kind of have a, a tendency toward that more. Maybe they're a little more gifted in that way because of certain things about their personality. But I also think it's something that we can develop and we can grow in. Uh, I don't think it's purely, well, you've just got that gift and, and I, I don't have that gift. No, I, we, can, we can develop that gift uh, and use that. Yeah, and I'll just say about that, you know, it, there, there are two huge aspects of being an encourager. One, you have to care about people. And two, you have to notice what people need. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's really it. Yeah. Because if you care enough, you are going to start to notice and you're going to be looking for things, looking for ways. Well, what can I do to help this person or assist this person? Or, you know, what kind of need is there? Well, if we care enough about people, we're going to find that need. And uh, And if you don't care about people, then you should not say, well, I just don't have that gift. No, you need to start caring about people is what you need to (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's part of it. Yeah. Um, Not not to beat a dead horse here, but uh, this, this phrase has just really stuck out to me. Uh, You mentioned, a minute ago, we're not converting people to a church. We're com- converting people to the Lord. Um, you know, verse 21, people who believe turn to the Lord. Yeah. Uh, verse 23, what did he encourage them to? To remain true to the Lord, mm-hmm. not to a church. Verse 24, considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And, and here again and again and again, it, it's we're bringing people to the Lord. And I think that, that that should help us to want to encourage even more because we're not encouraging people to, to be part of our social club and you need to be more active in our membership. Yeah. You know, it's, no, it's not like that. You need to be more active in the Lord. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that, that sort of, that drive, I think, helps us to care more. Um, you know, because if it was all just about, you know, how many times a week can we get somebody into a certain building at the same time? Mm-hmm. That's much different than uh, how, how can I encourage this person to remain faithful, yeah. to be the kind of person that the Lord wants. Well, we said a second ago that, you know, the, the, the wisdom here and kind of in sending Barnabas to this group and kind of the right guy at the right time, right place. Uh, that's also true, I think, of, of Saul, because verse twenty-six, or excuse me, verse twenty-five, then says, "So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and they taught a great many people." We'll just pause right there. Um, Says so second ago, you know, we really don't know what Paul was doing during this time. Um, you know, if if you figure Paul was converted. You know, I've seen different calendars for this, you know, in the year 35, 36, 37, somewhere in that ballpark A.D. Mm-hmm. Um, and now at this point, we're going to notice here in just a few moments uh, when this is said about this with the famine um, and who, you know, Claudius was reigning. That helps us narrow down as well what, what the time frame on the calendar is. We've got a period here of, of, of some years since we last saw Saul, you know, after he obeyed the gospel, comes to Jerusalem, and doing some preaching and teaching there. To this point, that again, we just don't entirely know what what was going on. Maybe some of the stuff that Paul talks about over in like Second Corinthians eleven about the things that had happened to him, maybe that's when some of that stuff took place. Is kind of in this interim. We just don't entirely know. I don't take it that he's just like sitting on the couch doing nothing, you know, waiting for the call. Yeah. Uh, I take it that he's busy uh, in, in in doing the Lord's work. But the fact that Barnabas goes and, and recruits him for this work. Uh, Again, it's 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 the it's a right pairing uh, for him. Yeah. You know, Saul being from Tarsus, that's a again that's a city that's kind of outside of Judea. 
which means he would have been well acquainted with 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 Hellenism and and, and a lot of the Greek culture. You know, Paul would have been fluent in Greek, would have been fluent in Hebrew, and so um, here's a guy that is just going to be a great fit for what they're trying to do to help bring these people uh, fully to Christ as they, as they grow and as they work with them. It's an you know, extended period of time that they stay with them for a whole year that they work with that uh, congregation and in that city and in that area. Um, and so, yeah, uh, and here's, here's kind of the... Uh, the beginnings, I mean, we saw the beginnings of, of, of a friendship back a, a couple chapters ago with Paul and Barnabas, but right here's kind of the beginnings of this tag team of, mm-hmm. of Paul and Barnabas working together, going from place to place. Uh, and of course, when we get over here in chapter, what is it, chapter 13, uh, this is when we're going to see them you know, officially going off on these uh, preaching journeys together. Uh, what else about Saul here? I mean, it, it's just being an encourager like Barnabas doesn't mean that you do everything yourself. Yeah. Sometimes you realize that there's a need and you're not the person to fill that need. And yeah. that's okay. Uh, and, and, and even if, if you know that somebody needs to be taught the gospel, what if you don't feel comfortable teaching? What if, what if you're like, I, I don't really know if I know enough to do it. Do you know somebody that does? Yeah. I mean, you could put people together. You'd be the connector. You, know, you were the glue. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there you go. And so uh, he knew Saul well enough to know, okay, he would be a major asset here uh, and he would be great. Uh, and and Saul and you don't see the the mindset behind Saul and, and everything that you said before about where he was, but he was willing to get up and go, yeah, um, and stay for a year. That's kind of a large commitment, yeah. Uh, you know, just to pick up everything and go. And so I think that that both of these attitudes we need that we need that in the church. We need people who are willing to be an encourager, willing uh, to to connect people, and willing to get up and go and do what do what will be beneficial to the Lord's kingdom. Uh, you know, whenever and wherever it's needed. Yeah. Notice that at the end of verse twenty, or well, there in the middle of verse twenty-five, that. The emphasis, once again, is on that they taught a great many people. You know, I have had the displeasure, I'll say it that way, of being in circles, standing and talking with fellow preachers that you know work in different locations. And sometimes the conversation will turn to, well, hey, how's the, how's the work going on where you are? And it seems that more often than not, the response is something along the lines of, oh, it's going great. We baptized 30 people last year. Yeah. Uh, or we had, you know, 15 people restored. And, and it's about these kinds of numbers as it pertains to you know, how many salvations did we get, you know, on the, on the scoreboard. Um, that's not the way that Luke describes the work of the Lord. Yeah. Uh, how many, how many preachers have you heard? You, know, you ask them, hey, how's the work going on where you are? And they say, oh, man, we've taught thousands of people last year. And that's just where they left it. It wasn't, you know, we taught them and then that resulted in 27 baptisms and 13 rest. No. The Bible talks about that the success is in teaching many people. We're going to get the seed out there sown in as many hearts as we possibly can. And of course, what that person then does with it then, that's, a, that's up to them. That's between them and the Lord. And certainly if we can help in facilitating uh, the seed growing and germinating and becoming a Christian, great. We're glad to be in a position to do that. But our job is to just teach. And, and that's where Luke uh, really puts the emphasis here. A great many people were being taught. And that's what we need to 
That's what we need to see. That's, that's evangelism 101. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it, how do we measure our success at, you know, teaching people? It's not if they're converting. Because if we're using that as the metric, we might try to do things to change the message to get them in. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's all about doing what the Lord wants us to do, taking His message and spreading it. The response of the people, that's something that we cannot control. Yeah. Um, that's something that, that we just, we throw it out there, whoever it lands on, great. Um, and, and that's even, you think about the Old Testament, of, of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. They, they were all told, hey, you're going to go to these people, you're going to teach them, and they're not going to listen. Nobody's going to pay attention to what you're saying. Do it anyway. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's, if, if we know 100% this person's not going to listen, does that mean we just don't talk? No, we still do it. We, we be faithful to the call that, that God has yeah. given us. If the metric is counting wet noses, <laughs> then, then let's just go stand out here on the corner of Highway 27 and just offer people $50 to be baptized. Uh, Guess what? You'll baptize a lot of people that way. Yeah, yeah. We could really get our numbers up. We could meet all our quotas and you know, <laughs> set, new, set new records for the, for the next year. But that's, that's, that's not what it's about. It's about teaching. And um, Luke just sounds that note again and again and again throughout, throughout this book. Uh, before I forget this, and I, I meant to bring this up earlier, but um, talking about how the, the church of Jerusalem was concerned about the spir- spirituality of the church of Antioch, and they were reaching out to them. You know, I, I've been a part of groups that focus more on, man, our, our carpet's getting really old, and, and our, our, the, the pew colors compared to the colors of the wall, I think we need to paint. You know, the cosmetic things and, and things about the building or, or things about, you know, the grounds, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, we need to have more spiritual concerns. Yeah. I think we're, we're focused on, on the physical uh, appearance of things too much. Um, and, you know, should we have a building that's falling apart? Probably not. Right. But uh, what is the real important thing? It's a there? question of emphasis. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Um, that last statement in verse 26, which we haven't read yet, that in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Um, notice, first of all, it does not say that the disciples were called Jews. Hmm. We're, we're actually, this is probably a good sign that we're, that we're kind of some breaking down of those walls. We're, we're, we're getting away from that. Um, there's lots of debate, though, about whether this was originally meant to be um, you know, a, a kind description, or whether right. this is maybe meant to be a more disparaging description. Notice it does not say that the disciples called themselves Christians. Hmm. Uh, the implication is, is that other people, kind of on the outside, referred to those Christ followers as, well, as Christ followers, that's what a Christian means. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, you, you Christ people. Um, I, if you ask me my opinion, I tend to kind of lean more toward that probably it was meant to be a disparaging term. You may you may take the other position and that'll be fine. Um, and the reason I say that is because throughout throughout Acts and throughout all the other epistles, it seems as if there are lots of other terms that these early Christians were more inclined to use to describe themselves: yeah. uh, disciple, follower, uh, saint, brother, sister. Um, the term Christian itself is only used how many times in the whole New Testament? Three times, yeah, yeah. Uh, and this is one of them. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that this was not a fitting term. It was a fitting term. Again, it means you Christ people, you Christ followers. And so maybe over time, what was originally meant to be, you know, some kind of a, you know, humiliating thing. Yeah, <laughs> look at those Christ people over there. 
Hey, you know what? Hey, thanks. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, it became uh, a, a name that was very fitting. And, and I like the term Christian. Uh, I, I like the thought of getting to wear the name of Jesus, that we should be so privileged to get to wear that name. In fact, that's kind of the, the play that Peter makes when he uses the word Christian uh, in his epistle, um, that we do get to wear that name. Uh, the other thing that I just would say about this, to kind of tie back to some stuff that we talked about a moment ago, notice that they weren't called churchians. Hmm. Yeah. You know, they were not identified by, well, they're part of, of, of that congregation of people over there. Nope. They were identified by the one to whom their allegiance belonged, and that True. was that was to Christ. And that's that's huge. Um, and I think people get we we get too focused on which which group are you part of. You know, we we really like that the click mentality of yeah. I'm part of this group and I am part of this crowd. And I think even members of, of the Lord's Church, we have that problem too. And I think sometimes we we focus too much on that. Um, you know, well, what what name is on the building? Yeah. You know, and, and really, what it's about is, well, who are you, who are you serving? Um, and that's where the emphasis needs to be. Um, you know, to to be considered worthy to experience the uh, the persecution that Christ experienced. You know, that that's what Peter was getting at a lot in his letter. Yeah. Um, but you know, that's our connection with Christ is so much more important than our connect connection with a certain religious entity. Yeah, and especially because, well, and the other reason for that too is because uh, people are going to let us down. You know, I've, I've been a part of, of, yeah. of great congregations throughout my life, but none of them were perfect. Yeah. Um, and so even when those r- relationships fall short in whatever ways that they do, it, when I recognize that I'm a Christian, again, I'm not a churchian, I'm a Christian, mm-hmm. uh, then my allegiance to Jesus is, is never going to wane. Uh, we want to put balance on this and make sure nobody comes away thinking the wrong thing. We both, both of us, highly value the local church Amen. and what, what God has set up. And you, you talk about the universal church, that as well. But, but on the local level, that's so valuable. It's, it's, it's one of the vehicles by which God you know, uh, is able to spread His gospel throughout the world. Christians working together in, in geographical uh, locations. But uh, at the end of the day, I don't, I don't want my identity... Uh, to be summed up with with where I attend, or with what specific group of Christians uh, that I worship with week after week. Uh, that's not to say that I'm embarrassed of that. I'm not. I'm proud of that. Yeah. Uh, and we should be. But but our identity needs to be wrapped up in Christ. And when our identity is wrapped up in Christ, then well then of course yeah, it's also going to be wrapped up in the local church and. Uh, and, and in my brothers and sisters, you know, all over the place. But uh, that's the principal thing is is Christ. And so when these folks were being called Christians, even if it was meant as some kind of a derogatory term, um, those Christians in the first century, they didn't take it that way. They saw that as a as a badge of honor to wear, and we ought to see it in the same way. Yeah, Amen. I appreciate that balance. Uh, I think sometimes we can't get too far on either either side of that spectrum. Um, we do. I mean, how else are we going to be a good encourager, someone who is, is able to help out? we got to know the people that we're with, and we, yeah. we got have to associate with somebody, because if not, you know, it's just shot in the dark. Um, so it's there's a, a huge benefit in, in working along side-by-side people 
and and to get to know each other so that way we know who to connect people with mm -hmm. if there is something that comes up if, yeah. if someone you're trying to teach someone someone and they have a certain background well brother and so and so came from there and so let's put them together and you know there's there's all, all sort of ways to look at that but um, I, I think that the way God has organized his church is perfect mm -hmm. and that's what we need to follow yep so these Christians what did they do? Well, let's those last few verses here of chapter 11, verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. Uh, this, you know, sometimes we see the word you know, prophets doing things and we read about that happening in New Testament times. There's concern of, whoa, hold on, I'm not sure about this prophet thing. Is this fault? Well, we can know that this particular person who's prophesying is a correct and right prophet because he's doing that by the Spirit. The Spirit yes. is actually, here's the actual gift of prophecy of the Spirit. He foretells there's going to be a great famine over all the world. And there's the parenthetical note here that's given by Luke. This took place in the days of Claudius. Now that's a helpful little time marker because Claudius was the emperor um, from 41 to 54 AD. And if you even look in some outside sources outside the Bible, uh, this famine, at least when it, when it hits Palestine, happens in around 46 A.D. or maybe 45 A.D., depending on what calendar you're, you're going by. So all that's kind of helpful. Again, the other thing, too, that I, I like the fact that, that Luke does this in Acts. He does it a lot in, in the Gospel of Luke as well. It lets the reader know we're talking about real historical events. We're not talking about fairy tales that were made. This is not, <laughs> Luke does not say, and once upon a time, a, a famine happened. Yeah. You know, when, when he begins his gospel and he talks about, uh, you know, he's trying to kind of pinpoint when Jesus was born. You know, he talks about it was during the reign of this person. He talks about the census uh, that happened and all those things. Those are like real markers that even if you are a complete Bible skeptic, you, you can look outside of the Bible and you look at historical data. This stuff really happened. And I think Luke is kind of really big on that, of, of making that clear, that we're talking about real events that really did happen and you can, you can be certain of that. Um, there was this famine that was going to take place. So verse 29, the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And so uh, here's just kind of the brief mention of the, uh, of the famine that uh, takes place at that time. We see the goodwill of Christians on display once again, as we've already seen earlier in Acts with the, you know, at the, when the Christianity was first beginning to, 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 to spread and start there in Jerusalem and Christians were looking out for one another. And here in a time of, of you know, severe tribulation with some, some famine happening, uh, we see Christians doing what Christians are going to do, and as we're going to look out uh, for our brethren. Um, that does not mean, I don't think that means that they just completely forsook people who were not Christians, mm -hmm. but the activities here of what it seems like to be the Antioch church, I think the emphasis seems to be that those brethren as a collective, the work that they did was in helping their brethren, uh, helping brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and Notice in verse 30 when it talks about how they, you know, they, when they collected these, these funds or goods or whatever that they used as relief, uh, that they sent those 
to the elders. This is really maybe the first time that we're seeing mention of, of elders in action here in Acts. Uh, there's no mention here of setting up some kind of an institutional structure, uh, you know, that we need to set up the, the Judean Relief Fund, Famine Relief Fund Corporation. You know, that's a 50-whatever-C, you know, charitable organization. Uh, there's none of that. Uh, it's just, here's some Christians. We're, we're, we're gathered together these funds. We're going to send that uh, by the hands of, of reliable brethren, send that to the elders uh, back there in, in Jerusalem and Judea and, and trust that they're going to you know, know who and where that needs to go to. Uh, that's probably not really the, the, the point that Luke is making here. Uh, but we're getting details here that kind of helps us to understand, uh, you know, the work of the church and and what that ought to look like, um, and that there is a pattern, and this is a pattern we will see again and again and again in Acts. You see it in the letters to the Corinthians, uh, amongst other places, of how uh, benevolent work was was, was carried out. Uh, by the early church. Yeah, and uh, I think we've we've already seen things like that from the very you know the end of chapter four yeah. when there was there was need and so people gave and actually one of the people that we find out that gave was Barnabas yeah. and so it's kind of fitting that he is is one of the ones carrying this because yeah. he was one of the ones involved with that at the beginning um, and you have people giving up for uh, for what they would have themselves. Now the famine was all across the world from from what it says. Right. Um, how difficult would that be to let go of some of your own resources, knowing that this famine is coming, to help someone else? Um, that's big because I think a lot of people, when they hear something major is coming, what do they do? They hoard up everything for themselves. Yeah. And and you have this this concept of well, I need to protect me and mine, and, and I, I need and you know there's a sense in which yeah you do need to take care of your family. That's that's true. We're told to do that. But you need to care about other people too. Yeah, uh, you know it's not all about us, and and we need to be helping others. We need to be uh, looking for ways that we can we can be encouraging through contribution. Uh, and sometimes that is financial, and and some and it's it's just I think sometimes we as stewards of what God has given us, uh, sometimes things like this happen um, in a way to test what we're going to do. Uh, and how will we have an open heart willing to help out and willing to reach out? Um, and are we going to do it in the right way? I, I think that, that what you were saying before about this, this being sort of a template of, of how to handle this, it's important. You know, you have some transparency. Mm-hmm. You have, you know, Barnabas and Saul, very, uh, you know, reputable men right. who, are, who are taking care of this. Um, you know, you, you don't want just one person to be in charge of it and you know you just send it and nobody really knows you know how much is being sent and how much arrives there you know there's some transparency and there there's some things said uh you know paul is going to make some uh, other comments about things like this later on uh where we're going to find out that other people usually would send you know delegations and join the gift and that sort of thing um just so that everybody it's clear uh, you know, we're not trying to trap anybody in in like in, in saying no, we we don't trust you. No, it's it's just everything is done out in the open, um, because that's the way God's people operate. Yeah, 
transparency, uh, openness. And I think that that's not just with financial things. It's, it's with everything. It's how we live our lives. Right. And those, like I said, we're, we're, we're starting to get pieces of that piece together here uh, in Acts chapter 11. Uh, like I said, I, I don't necessarily think that's the, the main reason that Luke gives that information. Right. I, I will tell you what I, I do think is maybe the main reason that Luke inserts this information right here to keep in theme with, with what's been talked about in this chapter. And I realize the chapter divisions were not, were not placed here. But in keeping with the things that he's just got done talking about with uh, Peter retelling the events of, of the, the Gentiles' conversion and then now this, you know, what's going to probably be a more predominantly Gentile congregation in Antioch is you have these brethren who are very different from their Jewish purist brethren back in Jerusalem. And what are they doing? They are gathering together what they can do to help brethren that are very different from them. You know, when it comes to their their background and their their upbringing and the traditions that they've been accustomed to. But we're going to take up this you know collection or, or relief or however you want to term that, and we're going to send that to them. Why? Because they're our brothers in Christ, and we care about them. And I think Luke wants to show us that's a big deal here. And for these Christians here in Antioch to, uh, to kind of be the ones to kind of start to, to, to demonstrate that kind of reaching across the aisle sort of thing, um, that's a big deal. And, and this, is the, this is one of the reasons, again, why I love the Antioch church so much, uh, is uh, there is no concern here about you know, race or uh, any of the other kind of dividing lines that get drawn between between just humans, and unfortunately, sometimes those things still exist w- within the church as well. Um, we're in Christ, and, and that's what these people saw. And they they didn't see color of skin, they didn't see ethnicity or place of birth or so, socioeconomic standing. What they saw was the brother or their sister in Christ, and they had a heart to help. But I don't even know these people. But, but I don't even know what they're going to use it. How, how will I know if they're actually using it right? You know, I not care. Exactly. And that's, I think, a lot of arguments we make our, ourselves today. Um, if, if we look at the, this example, not saying that we should give blindly to every cause. Right. You know, it's, it's brethren. And we need, to do, we do need to have a trust for brethren. And, and no matter how different we are, uh, no matter how, you know, economically, culturally, ethnically, whatever, it doesn't matter. No, we're all in the body of Christ and we're all, we've, we've, remember we've turned to the Lord, not an individual group. Yep. Uh, and it's, it's much bigger than uh, what we see around us. And so I think that's impressive. Yes. Uh, and we'll, we'll get to revisit uh, the Antioch church uh, a little bit later. Um, this is another one of those places where where Luke does kind of a, a brief introduction, and then he's gonna gonna come back later because yeah. in the next scene he's gonna kind of he's gonna shift back to to, to looking at the Peter story for uh, for a little bit, uh, and then we will we will resume with uh, Paul and Barnabas and their uh, various escapades beginning in chapter thirteen. But parting shots on chapter eleven before we. Uh, Officially call this one done. Well, just be a Barnabas. Uh, just yeah. reach out, encourage, do what we can to help uh, wherever we can. However, uh, you know, we're all in this together. We're all members of the Lord's body. 
and I, I think we need to, to work to build each other up. So in whatever way, ways we can do that, whatever ways you can think of this week, uh, just right now, what can I do to serve others? What can I do to encourage others? Uh, what can I do to learn more about the Lord so I can be more beneficial to others? And so for that, just, just guys, let's keep studying. Good Barnabesian uh, closing thoughts there, uh, <laughs> Brother Encourager. Uh, yeah, I appreciate uh, all of the, those thoughts. And there's, there's, you know, we, there's so many things we're, we're not uh, bringing out. We're, I mean, we're, we're, we are dissecting the text, but we're not parsing every single word. If we did, this would be the longest of long-form podcasts. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we appreciate folks uh, listening along and having an interest in uh, in these things, we we could talk about them for for days, and so we're uh, we're glad to get to just share some of our thoughts in a in an open and public kind of way like this. Uh, appreciate you listening, and look forward to talking about Acts the twelfth chapter next week.